Hi, this is Paul. Hope you don't mind if I wear my hat. Office is a little cold. Makes my head a little cold without any hair. So, uh, thought I'd read the tweet thread I put out today. People seem to appreciate it on Twitter. Stopped by to see a friend today. Hadn't seen him for a few days, so I wanted to check on how he was doing. About six months ago, after cycling him through the psych ward about every month, for about six months, he got into some sort of halfway house that lasted for six months. I knew things would fall apart when he stopped by at the end of November saying, I'm going to move back into the neighborhood, back where I used to live. It, that's where he, that's, that's when the whole story started. That place where he used to live was the place he lived right before he became permanently homeless a decade ago, before he started sleeping outside my office door, the place that started our journey together. So in December when he moved, when he moved in, I doubted it would last. By mid-December, he was already at my office almost every day complaining about his situation. Why am I paying money to have this guy not let me into the house I'm renting? Many of the board and cares or room and boards around here uh, don't let people in the house when they're unsupervised. And I can very much understand that if I owned the house because their house could get burned down, people could be victimized. I get that. What that means for a lot of these people is that they, they literally have nowhere to go during the day, and nowhere to go can sometimes sort of be an invitation to trouble. The guy told me that he couldn't be in the house when he, the landlord, wasn't home. It's not unreasonable on his part, but it doesn't work for Daniel. As the weather got worse and his behavior got worse, he was relegated to the porch. Right after that, and now remember, he's paying three-quarters of his monthly um, check from the government to this place for room and board. Right after the holidays and the real rains had started, he, he, um, had started, he showed up at my office soaking wet and hopping mad. He needed some dry clothes and a hot meal, so I took care of that and settled him down. He wanted to go back to the psych ward for a few weeks. He knows the magic words to, um, to say to get in, and he spent most of the... the the worst stormy weather in Sacramento in the hospital, which was a good thing. He got a couple. He got out a couple of weeks ago and paid back some of the money that he borrowed. His credit is good. He always pays back, usually um, a while later to borrow again. Uh, he has sort of a line of credit with me. He said he wasn't going back to the house. Why pay all that money for nothing? So he took his old spot at the grocery store right behind the church. When I got there today, he was just readying his crack pipe. Strangely, part of why I like the homeless is that they can be so honest. Can be so honest. They can be astoundingly dishonest, too, sometimes. But, you know, walking up on him when he's getting his crack pipe ready, it's like, I'm smoking crack. <laughs> That's just what he said. <laughs> as easily as he would tell me the time of day. He's usually happy when I stop by. Um, he's no, He knows it is because I care about him. He's always up and down with his other relationships. He's bipolar. He talked about the stuff we usually talk about. Today it was mostly about drugs. He knows a lot about them. He actually worked in the county mental health facility, which is why he has pretty decent insurance. We talked about crack and meth and pot and alcohol and, and how they work and talked about a bunch of psychedelics. And, and he says, I'm not, a, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm an, I'm an allaholic. And he says, I'm, a, I'm addicted to all these drugs. And I remember once he showed me a piece of paper that he got out of the hospital when he was discharged. And, you know, basically the hospital said the same thing. And so 
he's had, he has a little bit more money because if he's not paying for rent, then he's got more money for drugs. And so, you know, usually it's pot and beer, but, you know, if he's got a little more money, he'll, he'll, he'll reach up for crack. After the various ins and outs of the drugs, his history of running crack houses, he always brags about it. There's one point in his life when he ran two crack houses, and um, he likes telling me stories about that. And then we talk about the Book of Mormon, and we talk about his Mormon faith. We talk about him growing up and um, his father, who, who we both talk to now and then. His mother died a number of months ago. How cold it's been and how, how he's been staying warm. He's got three sleeping bags there and a half a loaf of bread, a quart of milk, an open beer, a bottle of ketchup, and an unopened can of chili. The milk is important because that's, um, that's what he uses to get things down. His esophagus is shot. Milk, help get, milk helps get things down. We chatted, and then I told him I wanted to check on um, I just wanted to check on him. He thanked me, and he said he might stop by later. He wanted to use the church stove to cook up something. I think about how I think about how we're sort of right back where we started from. That's, you know, like this going on 10 years. About a week um, in about a week his street drugs will put his bipolar all out of whack. He'll be despondent when he sees my car, he'll shout from the street. That's the new thing. He's just bang on the door and I can't get to the door as easily because of the fence and so now he stands out in the scream and street and screams pastor paul pastor paul and he won't stop yelling until i come out um so if i'm making a video and you hear pastor paul then you know what's happening and so then i'll uh take him in and we'll talk and we'll maybe call his father maybe i'll make him a can of soup maybe i'll you know i've got a bag i got a bag of blankets and clothes and some of these kind of things for when i need them with him and And then, you know, I don't want to live. I don't, I hate myself. I don't want to be me. I don't want to be anyone but me. Okay. Shall I run you to Sierra Vista? Yes. Okay. So then we'll go down there. Don't, don't, don't just drop me off. Make sure I get in. I'll make sure you get in. So I stand out there and we push, press the buzzer and they'll talk to us through the little machine. And then some kindly nurse will come out and she'll take a quick look at me and, but they know him and, and he goes and I won't see him for three weeks then. And then he'll get out and it'll be pastor Paul and I'll bring him in and he'll be bright eyed and bushy tailed and washed and clean. And he'll have had three meals a day and be showered and happy and they'll have his bipolar all sort of dialed back in all the street drugs out of them and you know last time we did this he he stuck a he stuck a bottle of uh he stuck some pot here in the bushes so fished around for that and i remember one time when he got out and you know he had a he had a bag of pot in one hand he had a bottle of beer in the other hand and he said i got a crack whore back in the mattress back there so life is good And then we'll go through the cycle again. <laughs> Two, three weeks. He does have a caseworker now. He told me today his caseworker was going to bring him to the doctor in two days. That might um, put him back in the hospital to detox. I don't know. Uh, maybe they'll put him back in the other facility again because after he goes through a few times, they'll see this isn't working. This is costing the county a lot of money or his insurance company or whoever is paying. 
He won't stay long. When he starts feeling better, he'll want his freedom again. He'll want to drink, have sex, find non-hospital staff like me to chat with and share his much restated, repeated stories and values. I wonder if he lives in Can- I wonder if he lived in Canada if they would have put him to death by now. He's sort of living a slow death, but then again, aren't we all? I watched my father walk this path with many people in the 60s and 70s, and here I am doing it after him, which is really quite amazing. Um, My father wrote a memoir of sorts right after he retired, entitled it Chains of Grace, and um, uh, you can find it on Kindle. I'll I'll leave a link below. Um, I was was doing a live stream, and Chad (laughs) showed me he picked up a paper copy there's, I don't know, a few dozen paper copies floating around. Every now they show up in the used, in the used book chain, and uh, people can grab paper copies. I've got paper copies for me and all of my kids so that they'll have it going forward. But um, it is the work that I both hate and value. There's an intimacy. Um, <laughs> Mark and Manuel talk about the intimacy crisis, and they're right. It's an intimacy in walking with him and others. I know this path leads to death. This is part of the reason why I'm not an atheist. If it only leads to death, then life isn't worth anything, is it? I don't know what the Lord will do with Daniel, what he'll do with how he spent his life, how he'll live, um, how he had to live with the burden of his bipolar, how he'll engage with his Mormon faith, I do believe, though, that God is good and he will do what's right. And um, actually, when Chad picked up Chains of Grace and showed it to me, I thought, well, you know, I when I get some time, you know, maybe if uh, Living Stones goes under, I'll have a lot more time on my hands and I'll start doing other things with it. And I thought I should probably, I should probably edit my father's book. I've got the whole thing in Microsoft Word on my computer. I've got all of my dad's old files. And... Um, could probably go through and edit the book and maybe write some additional things. There's some places of the book that can use some editing. Um, I know some of you people out there have read it. It'll tell you a lot about me, at least a lot where I came from, and give you an idea of the shape, why I am what I am. But I, I opened up the copy of the book I had on Kindle, and it brought it right to the end, and it brought it right to this piece. This My grandmother, um, my grandmother used to write for the banner, which is the publication of the Christian Reformed Church, used to be a weekly publication. My grandmother had a column in the banner called Woman's World. My grandmother was the wife of my grandfather, who was a minister, and uh, she was she was the writer. She she wrote Bible puzzle books. She wrote articles for the banner. She's a very sharp lady. Um, you know, had an eighth grade education, and after that, had a little bit of secretarial training, but. No formal education after that, but in um, August 24, 1981, it's not too long after I graduated from high school, she wrote this piece for the banner, and I just read part of it now and thought, wow, it's interesting what changes and what stays the same. It was in the fall of 1932 that my fiancé, who was then a ministerial candidate, received a call from the Christian Reformed Church of Vesper, Wisconsin. A salary of $800 per year was offered plus free use of parsonage and telephone, a 10-party line. They had great stories about that party line. No extras such as heat, car expense, hospital insurance, and so on were mentioned. However, the call was accepted and we were married. 
my grandfather's father, my great father, my great grandfather died on the night of their wedding. Um, they canceled the wedding because he had a stroke that morning. And um, I told some stories about my great grandfather. He was the first one to emigrate to the United States, he brought his father and um, his disabled brother and a couple of sisters over. Died the night my um, died the night my grandfather and grandmother got married, and the next day they moved out to Vesper, Wisconsin. They moved to Vesper in November of that year. This was shortly after the beginning of the Great Depression of the 30s. No doubt some of our readers remember those years. Not as many readers remember it today as remembered it in 1981, no doubt. I can't believe that's over 40 years ago now. No doubt some of our readers remember those years, although many of you had not yet arrived on the scene at that time. Wow, that's a, I, can, I can hear my father using that. It's funny reading my grandfather because I notice how many times that the phrases that my grandmother would use, my father picked up, of course. You know, he was he was her son. Oh, do I got the camera right? Just a little bit. How about that? That looks good. Practically all of our parishioners were dairy farmers, and financial times were very difficult for them. Remember, they with the call letter, they said at a salary of 800 a year. <laughs> our parsonage, which was located in the country, was heated by three stoves, one of which we used for cooking, and the other was up to us to purchase wood. We had no electricity or indoor plumbing. Consequently, we had no monthly electric bills or water bills to pay. She used to tell stories about the, the kind of, uh, they had one parsonage where the well got condemned by the, by the county. Um, the church was angry with them for calling in the county. They had complained to the church numerous times about the quality of the water coming out of the well. It was making everybody sick. So they're getting no response from the church council. They called in the county, and then when the county condemned the well, and they went to the church, said, you know, the county condemned the well, the church is like, why did you call the county? <laughs> oh, gosh. We had to furnish all our lamps, which consisted of one small oil lamp, two Aladdin oil lamps with mantles, and one gasoline lamp, and we furnished the, the kerosene and gasoline. Our congregation had no budget system. The people dropped their loose coins in the offering basket for running expenses. The money for the minister's salary was placed in small envelopes marked, um, I can't say the Dutch word, salary basically. Each month, my grandfather, I'm sure, preached, probably, he preached in Dutch in Canada. They didn't know he knew Frisian, but my grandfather was fluent in Dutch and Frisian. Um, each month, the pastor was paid whatever amount had come in. It should be noted that our denomination had no fund for needy churches at that time. That was a program that they had later in the 20th century for smaller churches where the denomination would, would help support smaller churches. That, that program went away in, uh, towards the end of the 20th century. Shortly after we were married, my husband suggested that, um, that we decide to immediately to tithe. We promised the Lord that we would give him one-tenth of our income. One month we, we received $20 in salary and the following month only 12. I became a bit discouraged and asked, does the Lord expect one-tenth of, so, of, of the little money we are getting? He replied, yes, I believe he does. Then he quoted the text from Malachi 3.10. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings. I had an order ready sent to Sears, Roebuck & Company in Chicago, but I had to lay it aside month after month as there was no money for the articles we felt we needed. Occasionally, our farmers would, would 
brought us a piece of pork or beef after they had butchered, and once in a while someone brought a live chicken. I had better refrain from telling you some of our experiences we young city people had living with our first chickens. However, as time went by, we became quite proficient at this task. One evening, a man stopped in and brought us a live rooster in a gunny sack. It was too cold and dark to go out and kill it, so we decided to leave it in the sack on the kitchen, on the kitchen floor overnight. We had a rather unique alarm clock the next morning. There were times when we had no beef or pork, so we substituted pig salmon we could purchase at the A&P store at three cans for 25 cents. We'd use only half a can for a meal, but adding an egg and some breadcrumbs, I made a salmon patty for one meal, and the following day, the other half was creamed and served as meat and gravy. The sole income of many of our farmers came from milk they sold, in the sold to the condensary or cheese factory. During the Depression, that milk price dropped to an all-time low. Some of the farmers in that vicinity formed a milk pool and decided to strike by withholding all the milk. Picket lines, picket, pickets lined the road, and if a farmer tried to bring his milk into town, he was mercilessly, it was mercilessly dumped in the ditch. I recall one afternoon when we drove into town for groceries and the pickets decided to stop our car. It could be that the preacher was trying to smuggle some milk in for one of his farmers. We didn't quite stop soon enough to suit them, and they threw a board spiked with, um, filled with spikes in front of our car to make sure we would stop. Reminds me some of the strikes in the DR I had to deal with. The farmers wondered what to do with all their milk. Leave it to the women. Many of these wives scrubbed their washing machines. Now, my grandmother was no women's liver. <laughs> Far from it. But she had, uh, she had every understanding that women were the practical ones and could do in a pinch. Many of their wives scrubbed their washing machines and used them in place of butter churns. But then, what could they do with all that butter? Yes, you guessed it. Possibly the minister could use some of it. Butter began pouring into the parsonage. One afternoon, we visited a woman who had recently recovered from illness. When we were about to leave, she offered us some butter. We never refused these gifts of love, and she gave us a beautiful roll of butter weighing about three pounds. Upon arriving home, we headed for the basement where our butter was stored, since we had no refrigerator. Little jars and packages of butter were lined up on a shelf. We figured we had about 13 pounds of butter. Hiram, that's my grandfather, turned to me and asked, Do you have any money in your purse? I replied, Not one cent. I could just hear her say that. We took a few coins from his pocket and said, Well, we have 12 cents to our name and 13 pounds of butter. It really made us chuckle. I used butter for all our frying, baking, and cooking since we were just too poor to buy lard. When there wasn't much else in the house, we enjoyed hot oatmeal with lots of butter and brown sugar. We didn't worry about cholesterol in those days. There came a day when we were about out of firewood and money as well. I said, the Lord hasn't opened these windows yet. Hiram replied, he will. We were hoping to get some salary from the consistory that evening, but very little had come in. Then the pastor spoke up and told the men that we needed wood and had no money to buy it. One elder replied, oh, if it's wood you need, we can help with that. You will get some wood tomorrow. Shortly after breakfast the next morning, I heard sleigh bells in our yard. I looked out of the window and saw a team of horses pulling a sleigh with firewood. 
A few minutes later, I heard more sleigh bells, and another load of wood arrived, followed by three more. We had five loads of, loads of wood, and I exclaimed, The windows of heaven have opened, O ye of little faith. At the end of our second... as as the end of our second year approached, the congregation was nearly $400 in arrear in the minister's salary. They had been able to pay us just a little bit over $600 a year. The consistory asked at the congregational meeting if the pastor would be willing to cancel the debt, since they saw no way of ever paying it, and they would begin the next year with a clean slate. After a moment's thought, Hiram said, I'll settle for half a pig. One man immediately got up and said he had a nice little pig running around that he would be glad to sell to the congregation. The collection was taken that netted approximately $7. The pig was sold, butchered, and delivered to the parsonage. We rendered lard, ate delicious pork chops, and canned several quarts of fresh pork for future use, some of it to be saved especially for our company. Our first child, that was my father, was born in 1935 when I was ready to leave the hospital. When I was ready to leave the hospital, his dad went to the office to tell them he was unable to pay any of the bill. They were used to hearing that and said, just pay when you can. Every month we drove to the hospital, often with just one dollar, but eventually the entire bill was paid. Um, the bill was twelve dollars. Um, a few farmers lost their farms because they were unable to keep up with their payments. Decomposed granite was discovered in some of the farms in the vicinity of the church. The county was very much interested in buying this granite for use on the county roads, since it was superior to gravel. Two of our farmers decided to permit the county to dig up portions of their farms for this purpose. In this way, they received enough income to make their farm payments on time. Even to this day, the small lakes surrounding the former church property are reminders of the Depression. A neighbor stopped in, uh, stopped in one morning as we were chatting. He said, I hear you're going home to Grand Rapids next month. Both my grandfather and grandmother grew up in Grand Rapids, and that's where they met. I replied, no, John, I'm not going. He asked, but isn't the Domini going to Synod? The Domini is what you call the, what they would call the, the minister in these Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, it actually means Lord. <laughs> isn't the Lord... Um, isn't the Domini going to Synod? Yes, he is, I replied, but I'm staying home. Why, he asked. I thought, I thought I just, um, oh, I thought I just wouldn't go along. That was a lie. <laughs> Come now, I'm sure you would like to go and to see your mother and your other relatives. Tell me the reason. I finally admitted that I was a little too proud to go to Grand Rapids because of my old clothes. Then he told me that he had recently made the semi-annual payment on his farm and that he had a little money left in the bank from his last granite check. How much do you need, he asked. I thanked him for his offer, but I told him I could not accept money from him since I had no idea if I could ever repay it. He answered, if you can't, okay. If someday you can, you may do so. But you are going to Grand Rapids with your husband. He left, went to the bank, and returned laying three $10 bills on the table. What a shopping spree I had. I bought a Sunday dress for $5, a white hat for $1.19, a pair of white shoes for $1.49, enough cotton material at $0.39 cents a yard to make three everyday dresses, shirts, and a tie for high, Hiram. Also some handkerchiefs, socks, and underwear. As I looked at his old undies, I found it a bit difficult to tell what were patches and what was part of the original garment. She was patching his underwear. 
Some months later, my husband came home from a consistory meeting with a check for $90. The Home Missions Board had heard that there was need in the Vesper Parsonage, and they had sent this to apply to our salary. Again, those windows came to mind. The first thing we did was to pay John the $30 that I owed him. A few years ago, while spending a weekend with the Vesper Congregation, which is now known as Wisconsin Rapids, we visited John, who is now an elderly man in his upper 80s. I told him he had never forgotten this kindness to us. His eyes filled with tears, and naturally mine did too. What have the, what have the depression years meant to us? While there were difficult years, they were also blessed ones. The one, the one important thing we learned was that our total dependence upon God. We had no bank account to fall back on, no steady income to depend on, no people with money to help us. It was, a, it was such times that one um, lives close to the Lord. We can testify that he supplied all our needs. We never went hungry, and we learned to be content with food and clothing. To this day, we continue to tithe, and God has never let us down. They didn't die with much. At that time, it's interesting because my grandmother, there's just so many stories. My grandmother was a great storyteller. She was saving money. She was saving money to, um, to get married, to start a life with my grandfather. Her father was broke, needed a roof on the house in Grand Rapids. She had to give him all her money so that the house could have a roof. It was hard times. At times we had, um, at times we had met with some of those former parishioners, and more than once he, and there, more than once has said, "We will never forget you, folks, and how you suffered along with us during those hard times." We are now retired and are comfortably settled in a lovely condominium apartment. We are both enjoying good health. Truly, God has opened the windows of heaven and poured out blessings, and continues to do so. He always keeps his promises. There's my grandmother and my father, and. His, uh, his sister, Glenda. Glenda passed away. My father died in 2013. Glenda passed, my sister died in 2018. I think Glenda passed away in 2016 or 17. She had cancer. My grandmother passed away in uh, 1991, about 10 years. No, wait a minute. Grandfather passed away in 91. Grandma passed away in 94. Something like that. This is a picture from 1947. There's my grandfather, Hiram, and my father, Stan. My Aunt Glenda, my Uncle Dave, he's the only one still, still living of this group. He lives in Florida. He was a cop on Long Island for his career and then retired to Florida. So yeah, I don't. This video might not be a cup of tea for most of you, but um, it's interesting how ministry cha stays and changes and stays the same. Level of affluence, obviously, significantly different than it was for my grandfather, my grandmother. God is good.